0: good vibrations. You asked to touch my hand and my heart skipped a beat. It was like wind touching a butterfly's unpunctured chrysalis. It was the only way for life to happen. It felt necessary, bound. Intimacy only understood subjectively. You are words unspoken, but we choose to speak our truths, unwrapped Pretty bow tossed aside, gift box usually gifted to everyone we come across is non-existent. I am myself with you without even deciding to be in each moment. I'm worthy of ease, an affirmation manifested. The Third Wind. Good Vibrations by Ife the Artist. So that opening poem comes from a great friend of mine named Ife Aldine. She goes by the name Ife, I-F-E, the artist on all her social media. Uh, She's a fucking terrific artist, poet, wellness expert, and a great fucking friend. So go subscribe to her. Let her know what you think of her work. And also subscribe to her new podcast. It's called Love Cannot Hold Fear. Presented by Ife, the artist. Go subscribe to that. Let me know what you think of that. Check that out. Um, yeah, I'm actually really proud to have this poem framed in my house. It really embodies a situation that I'm in right now, and I'm glad that she was able to fucking pretty much put into words how I feel about what I'm going through. So definitely go listen to that again. Let me know what you feel about her words. And like I said, subscribe to all of her shit right now. And before I go into our literature for this week, I just want to start with the pop culture news, as always, which means, unfortunately, I have to start with the rest in peace. So rest in peace to Sidney Poitier, born February 20th, 1927, and he passed away January 6th, 2022. He was the first African-American to win the Academy Award for Best Actor in 1964 and is known as the pioneer for blacks in American film. He was a decorated actor, director, and a Bahamian diplomat. His notable films include A Patch of Blue, Lilies of the Field, a terrific movie called Guess Who's Coming to Dinner, for sure go check that out, and the legendary A Raisin in the Sun. In actress Halle Berry's touching essay dedicated to Portier. she reflects by saying he did more than blaze a trail, he cleared a forest. Super heavy words. Go check out her essay that she uh, wrote about and dedicated to Sidney Poitier. Um, Huge words. Um, also for pop culture this month, I want to highlight the film The Tragedy of Macbeth. Starring Denzel Washington and Francis McDermott. I actually haven't like seen or heard too much about this movie. So it kind of made me skeptical about going to see it. It's a freaking coen brothers film just one of them though and it stars fucking denzel washington so you would think being that combination it would be a super huge film but like i said i haven't heard too much about it until i went to see it you know it being a twist on a on a classic tale of course not too many people are going to have that kind of interest in it but i definitely wanted to check it out um two reasons though The first being because it's a legendary William Shakespeare story that pretty much transcends all of literature. So I'm always going to be receptive to reinventing a classic story or film and introducing it to a new audience in a different way with a new twist. I was really interested in seeing what the twist would be on a classic play turned into a film. And without spoiling it, I will say it is a really great depiction of Macbeth. That's all I'm going to say. Um, the second reason being because it's a Coen Brothers film, but not both of the Coen Brothers, just Joel Coen. I was really interested to see if that would play into the final product, because these two are legendary together. They're responsible for films like The Evil Dead, Burn After Reading, Bad Santa, No Country for Old Men, True Grit, Fargo, The Big Lebowski, and probably my favorite out of everything I just named, The Lady Killers, starring George Clooney and Marlon Wayans. Now, if you've seen any of those movies, you know that they're all extremely detailed and really good movies. So to see that they wouldn't be working together on this film, it would just be one of the two brothers, really piqued my interest in it. And again, really, really great film. Um, I don't know if anybody out there is into, like, classic literature, classic film, or anything of the sort. But this movie is the shit. That's pretty much all I can say without giving out too much of it. Go check it out, definitely. Um, My favorite movie of the year so far. (laughs) Two weeks into the year. Definitely go check out Macbeth. Uh, Shout out to the Coen Brothers. Shout out to fucking Denzel Washington. And Francis McDermott. I'm always going to be in support of revamping classic literature and classic films. Because I'm going to just speak for everybody when I say I'm really fucking tired of uh, regurgitating the 80s every freaking two to three months. Every film it feels like within the last five to ten years. Every single film has been some 80s remake, an 80s show, or an 80s movie, 80s sitcom. They they just keep revamping as if the 80s was 120 years ago. So, at least we get something that isn't necessarily new, but it's still familiar if you know. And it could be something completely new if you don't. So, I actually really like that as far as revamping something with the 80s where your mother knows it, your uncle knows it, your aunt knows it, and it's just kind of weird. So thank you to Joel Cohen for that, for sure. I want to get into one last thing before I start on this book for the week. I want to give a special shout out to Bethany and the staff over at Swings Coffee Roasters in Alexandria, Virginia. I want to start off by saying that the fucking customer service over at Swings is unmatched. Um, Probably the best I've had dealing with any type of coffee roasters yet. From the time I called to place my order, Bethany was respectful. She was funny. She was helpful. Um, And then she also followed up, which I didn't expect, but it really made the biggest difference in my experience. Um, From the moment I called to place my order for their bourbon barrel aged Ethiopia, like I said, she just was a big help and really made me feel Comfortable and a part of the customer family. So thank you, Bethany. Thank you to swings for that Um, Their their coffee that I ordered is their bourbon barrel aged Ethiopia. It's made in partnership with smooth ambler spirits Um, What can I say about this bean? It's a really smooth bean. It's bourbon barrel aged So you would expect it to be extremely dark, especially because it's in Ethiopia But this is a really really smooth really strong bean but it still has a nice sweet chocolatey taste you can kind of taste the bourbon in it it's really really clean um my favorite bean by far in a really really long time if you know me you know i drink coffee fucking religiously and from the time i found this bean i've just been enjoying it ever since it's kind of like my uh my dessert coffee kind of a celebration coffee it's not something i will pull out every day but if i wanted to impress a group of friends or if i was in a huge business meeting and i wanted to close the deal i'm for sure pulling this out it's a really great coffee try it out order it now again you can get it from swings coffee roasters in alexandria virginia thank you bethany and thank you to the entire staff at swings um for all your hard work to produce this amazing bean i'm actually drinking it right now enjoying the shit out of it so thank you all again so let's talk about this book the 1619 project edited by nicole hannah jones so right off the back a few things to point out about miss hannah jones she's a pulitzer prize winning reporter for the new york times where she initially created the 1619 project and it progressed to the piece of literature it is today her accolades are many trust me She is a winner of a Peabody Award, multiple national magazine awards, and the winner of the 2018 John Chancellor Award for Excellence in Journalism. She has founded the Center for Journalism and Democracy at Howard University, and she founded the Ida B. Wells Society for Investigative Reporting. I always love to point out her accolades when introducing this book, simply because of the backlash and sensationalism that comes with the territory of race reporting. She has dedicated her entire career and life to racial investigation and has the fellowships, degrees, awards, and whatever else you need to know to prove it. In a letter published to the New York Times in December 2019, a group of well-known historians expressed quote-unquote strong reservations about the project and also accused the creators of putting ideology before historical understanding that's not the most disrespectful shit I've ever seen to a group of historians, I don't know what is. Like, these people literally dedicate their entire lives' work into understanding history. And for a group of historians to say that they don't have a correct historical understanding, whoo, that made me hot. I cannot even lie to you. But aside from that, I learned about this book as I read Ibram X. Kendi and Keisha N. Blaine's Great book, 400 Souls, absolutely terrific read. Please go check it out. Um, In my opinion, these two books serve a great marriage. As 400 Souls chronicles the development and impairments, for that reason, of the African in America from 1619 and beyond, the 1619 Project reinforces that those same 400 years gave way to institutions that would never exist how they do today without African Americans. I'm pretty sure we all can agree on that, but some historians believe that that is a um, historical misunderstanding. Wow. Yeah, but anyways, this book was published by One World, an imprint of Random House. And from beginning to acknowledgments, it's 480 pages, a pretty thick read, um, but a really, really informative read. For sure, go check it out. My excerpt comes from a chapter called Music. It's gonna be pages 366 to 370 in the book, so if you have your book with you and you wanna read along, let's go. Among the duties of the enslaved was the enslavers' entertainment. Black people were called upon to fiddle and dance for the white owners and their guests musicians were loaned out to other enslavers. Eventually, on their days off, they'd take their instruments into town to play and dance for pennies, sometimes for food. White people took in these songs and dances. They considered it savage, but that alleged wildness turned them on. A white person could deem black musicians lowly, subhuman, beyond redemption, while still finding himself helpless to resist their talent. Alas, some of these white people were so captivated that gawking was no longer enough. Before the Hampton Singers and the Jubilees started performing, 19th century black music had never reached the masses through black artists. What the country at large heard was something altogether different. It was the music of black people as performed by white people a cartoon of the dances they did and the way they spoke. It wasn't black music at all, but blackface minstrelsy. White men painted pitch black doing dopey, but not unskilled dances and singing comic songs as they imagined black people might. Until the 1830s, American stages had been fat with imported European culture, Shakespeare, operas, waltzes, What was there for the common man to enjoy? Blackface minstrelsy was it. The birth of American popular culture. Minstrelsy's peak stretched from the 1840s to the 1870s. Years when the country was at its most violently and legislatively polarized about slavery. Years that included the ferocious rhetorical ascent of Douglass. John Brown's botched instigation of a black insurrection at Harper's Ferry the Civil War, the assassination of Abraham Lincoln, and Reconstruction. What minstrelsy offered the country during this period was an entertainment of talent, ribaldry, and polemics. But it also lent racism a stage upon which existential fear could become jubilation and contempt could become fantasy. The white person most frequently identified as the father of the art form is Thomas Dartmouth Rice, a New Yorker who performed as T.D. Rice and in acclaim was lusted after as Daddy Rice, the Negro par excellence. Rice was a minstrel, which by the 1830s, when his stardom was at its most refulgent, meant he painted his face with burned cork and grotesque approximation of the enslaved black people he was imitating. In 1828, Rice had been a nobody actor in his early 20s, touring with a theater company in Cincinnati or Louisville. Historians don't know for sure. When one version of the story goes, he saw a decrepit, possibly disfigured old black man singing while grooming a horse on the property of a white man whose last name was Crow. On went the light bulb. Rice took in the tune and the movements, but failed, it seems, to take down the old man's name. So in his song, the horse groomer became who Rice needed him to be. Wheel about and turn about just so, went his tune. Every time I wheel about, I jump Jim Crow. And just like that, this white man had invented the character who would become the mascot for two centuries of legalized racism. That night, Rice made himself to look like the old black man or something like him, because for his get up, Rice most likely concocted skin blacker than any actual black person's. He invented a gibberish dialect meant to imply black speech, and he turned the old man's melody and hobbled movements into a song and dance routine that no white audience had ever experienced before. What they saw caused a sensation. The crowd demanded 20 encores. Rice had a hit on his hands, He repeated the act again, night after night, for audiences so profoundly jolted that he was frequently mobbed during performances. Across the Ohio River, a short distance from all that adulation, was Boone County, Kentucky, which was largely populated by enslaved Africans. As they were being worked, sometimes to death, white people, desperate with anticipation, were paying to see a terrible distortion of the enslaved depicted at play. Other white performers came and conquered, particularly the Virginia minstrels, who exploded in 1843, burned brightly, and then, after only months, burned out. The circus impresario P.T. Barnum caught the fever, making a habit of booking minstrel troops for his American museum. When he was short on performers, he blacked up himself. By the 1840s, minstrel acts were taking over concert halls doing long residencies at some of the largest theaters in Boston, New York, and Philadelphia. A blackface minstrel would sing, dance, play music, give speeches, and cut up for white audiences, almost exclusively in the North, at least initially. Blackface was used for mock operas and political monologues. They called them stump speeches, skits, gender parodies, and dances. Its stars were the 19th century versions of Elvis, the Beatles, and Sync. It was on the one hand, harmless fun. Men in silly clothes and garish makeup inventing a kind of sketch comedy variety show. But the audience's prolonged exposure to these images normalized their intended hideousness. White performers jostled with each other to lay claim to being the real thing. The real black thing. Night after night, for six solid decades at least, audience upon audience looked on gleefully, and the false ideas being told about black people took on lives of their own. An art form populated often entirely by these horrid counterfeits thrilled the white people who paid to see them do skits about bickering black couples and songs like Uncle Gabriel about a coon hunt. The Virginia minstrels did aversion to great acclaim, Sometimes the fourth verse went like this: The niggers they come all around and kick up a devil of splutter. They eat the coon and claw the ground to dance the chicken flutter. They dance all night to the break of day to a tune on the old banjo, and then they all dig one away before the chicken crow. During minstrelsy's heyday. White songwriters like Stephen Foster composed the tunes the minstrels sang. Tunes we continued to sing more than a century later, like O oh Susanna, Dixie, Camp Town Races, Suwannee River, and my old Kentucky home goodnight. Edwin Pierce Christie's group, Christie's Minstrels, formed a band, banjo, fiddle, bone castanets, tambourine, whose combination of instruments laid the groundwork for American popular music, from bluegrass to Motown. Some of these instruments had come from Africa, among the enslaved. The banjo's body would have been a desiccated gourd. In Duda, his book on Foster's work and life, Ken Emerson writes that the fiddle and banjo were paired for the melody, while the bones chattered and the tambourine thumped and jingled a beat that is still heard round the world. This was the root of the American rock band. The first wave of minstrels had never meaningfully been south. In their shows, the tunes they played were based on Irish melodies and used Western choral harmonies, not the Prado gospel call and response spirituals that were the real, real thing. They tethered black people and black life to white musical structures, like, say, the polka, the mix that would define the young nation was already well underway. Europe plus slavery plus the circus times harmony, comedy, and drama equals Americana. And the muses for their songs were people they had seldom ever encountered, whose enslavement they rarely opposed and instead sentimentalized. Foster's beloved minstrel show staple, Old Uncle Ned, for instance, Warmly, if disrespectfully, eulogizes the enslaved the way you might a salaried worker or an actual uncle. Then lay down the shovel and the hoe. Hang up the fiddle and the bow. No more hard work for poor old Ned. He's gone where the good niggers go. No more hard work for poor old Ned. He's gone where the good niggers go. Such an affectionate showcase for poor, old, enslaved, soon-to-be-deceased Uncle Ned was as essential as air in the white travel writer, poet, and literary critic Bayard Taylor's assessment, included in his 1850 book, El Dorado, or Adventures in the Path of Empire. For him, minstrelsy songs and their attitudes were true expressions of the more popular side of the national character a force that follows the American in all its immigrations, colonizations, and conquests, as certainly as the 4th of July and Thanksgiving Day. It's the rare observation that dared connect the music and its performance to the country's communal rituals. Taylor wasn't denouncing minstrelsy or slavery. He was merely predicting that the art form's impact would last as long as fireworks in Turkey. That's going to be it for my excerpt from this book but it's absolutely ridiculous right um when i first read it to know that one of america's favorite pastimes which is music which is concerts is derived from none other than mocking the black man i thought was absolutely ridiculous and to know that it caught fire how it did and became this huge thing and actually was the birth of Jim Crow it's it's all intertwined it's all connected it's really really deep when you connect the pieces um and this book does that for you it connects the pieces so you don't really have to wonder where these institutions began because it tells you right there it's not a, a historical misunderstanding at all trust me I think the biggest takeaway from this entire chapter is going to be the fact that the overexposure to these minstrelsy shows influenced the white Americans' actual understanding of what the African American is and can be. Because they saw them in this one light, this one idiotic, ridiculous light for over a century, there's really no way to not create prejudices and social predispositions against that person when you have no idea about who they really are. I think this still happens on a massive level still, right today, when you turn on the news and you see these communities depicted in a certain way that isn't even exactly how that community really is. Or another huge example, the first thing I thought about when I read that is uh, remember those commercials that would always come on BT. they would run from fucking 11 o'clock at night to like eight o'clock the next day Every freaking second a commercial break came, they would show you these starving kids in Africa. They would show black people on black entertainment television, black people starving in these decrepit, shitty, rundown little African villages, these third world countries. But then when you grow and you learn, that's not even an accurate depiction of anywhere in Africa, really. It's just what we think it is Based off what we've been shown. You can come up with a lot of examples of just that right there. But I think that is like the biggest example that I remember. Like still happening right today. So I think it's important for us to understand. That whenever we aren't given a full picture. Or whenever we don't know the full depiction of what something is. A full understanding of what something is. Then we automatically are going to have these prejudices and these stereotypes created in our mind because we don't know. A famous line from Nas is, we fear what we don't understand. Hate what we can't conquer. I guess it's just a theory of man. Oh, that's fire. But um, yeah, it's important for us to at least try to gain a full understanding of the things we put ourselves in or we fill our, our time with because when we don't, we automatically have an idea of what we think it is, which isn't always true, especially when we've never encountered that person, place, or thing for us to have an idea of it. So, yeah, that's just my two cents on that specific chapter. Um, there's chapters on medicine, healthcare, justice, punishment, inheritance, capitalism, self-defense. All of these institutions and all of these things, all of these requirements that the American has, this book goes into specific detail on how it began, Why it is the way it is. How racism and politics have played a part in shaping what it is today. Absolutely amazing read. Please go check it out. Shout out to all of the uh, writers and poets. I was going to say rappers. Shout out to all of of the writers and poets and historians that put this together. Shout out to the New York Times for even uh, allowing this to become a thing. Um, Definitely check out this book. (sighs) There's no more that I can say besides uh, there's so much that I learned, so much that I'm freaking interested in learning just by opening up this book. So again, shout out to Nicole Hannah-Jones and everybody that worked on it. Please go check it out. My review will be on my website soon. I'd love for you to go check that out also. All right. So let's get into some music before we end the show. (laughs) My music spotlight is going to be a very, very special artist. Um, Means a lot to me. Uh, One of the best rappers I've ever heard. Wordplay ridiculous. I can go on and on about this person, but, you know, without further ado, I'm just going to let the music speak for itself. Definitely go download this album, Double O, from Landover with Love. Our music spotlight for this week is going to be an artist named... Dermaine. Oh shit, that's me. Like I said, go check out my new album, Double O from Landover with Love on all streaming platforms right now. And here's a song for you from the album. I hope you enjoy it. This has been the Composition Podcast Episode 2. Next week, I promise you, I won't Black history us to death, especially right before February. I'll just save all of that for next month. Our uh, book for next week is going to be Georgette Hire's Beauvais. It's a really, really fun book. (laughs) Extremely exciting book. If you can get past um, like old English writing, I guess classical writing, Regency writing, you will really enjoy this book like I did. But um, it's, it's definitely a process to get past it. But we'll save that for next week. Composition podcast episode three right now. Check out this song from my album from Landover with Love. Which one should I play? I'ma just let something ride. Enjoy. Yeah. Yeah. Look. Man, if you see me with it and you want it, don't you dare. Striking niggas, bitches, ain't nobody getting spared. Cheers for silly rabbits, just might knock off every hair. The hair on my head, it was made for air. Fuck a crown, if the sky is the limit, give me air. Highway to hell, then I guess I'll meet you there. Nigga, this my whore You could look But don't you stare yeah. Stingy ass nigga Growing yeah. up I did share yeah. I can come and fix your bars Like I'm John Taffer Some bastard Rose from the concrete and heavy traffic And lasted 24 years With plans of running past it And Elastic I still rock the ones That's hustlers passion I was taught Don't you kiss and tell When nobody asking But girl, I can turn your thighs To the grandest rapid. These niggas tell they lies You just gotta look past them everybody wants some clout and for that they'll do magic i just might copper a feel so i can graze in bitch i'm the goat half man half amazing don't be lying on my name That's something I don't play with Just know that I'ma throw that cat back at you Like I'm raiding I just play my role if you tell me the occasion I can party with the monsters politic with the Reagan Anywhere you think it's safe Boy I come disrupt the haven Oh she was asking about the sauce I gotta let her taste it You niggas preaching to the choir Not the congregation I'm on my P's and Q's Watch how I lead the conversation I smoke a lot of weed to have me make It had me making Stuck faces, then I be in my feelings Every time I feel complacent Man, if you see me with it and you want it, don't you dare Striking niggas, bitches, ain't nobody getting spared. Shares for silly rabbits just might knock off every hair The hair on my head, it was made for air Fuck a crown, if the sky is the limit, give me air Highway to hell, then I guess I'll meet you there Nigga this my whore, you could look but don't you stare, stingy ass nigga growing up Ooh, I didn't man. share, you know that if you see me with it and you want it don't you dare, striking niggas bitches ain't nobody getting spare, shells for silly rabbits just might knock up every hair, the hair on my head was made for air, fuck a crown this the sky is the limit